Thank you, Kim. I appreciate that. And as Kim uh, prayed for Camp Alawasa, uh it is the final week we're moving into, and uh, so keep them in prayer. Uh, I'm going to give you 37 seconds to rise and greet one another. Uh, just say, hey, I'm glad you're here, and are you coming to help Camp Teardown Day this Saturday at 9 o'clock? Because we need all the help we can get. 37 seconds. Go do it. I have no idea. Just thought today. No, I wasn't. I wasn't here yesterday. That's dangerous. <laughs> All right, I think your 37 seconds is up. Uh, we truly do need help. Nine o'clock Saturday morning up at camp. Uh, uh, many hands make uh, for light work there, but we, do, we have a lot to, to do in order to tear down camp. So if you can make it, that'd be great. So grab your Bibles and open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue this morning. A study we began several weeks ago on what it really means to be a slave of Christ. Every one of the Bible authors in the New Testament identified themselves as a slave of Christ, and, and we've seen that that's part of our identity as well. Uh, this morning, we're uh, going to see a little bit different angle as we're looking at Jesus Christ himself. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Follow along as I read those out loud. He writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Father God, again, we thank you for the opportunity we have had this morning to worship you in so many different ways. And God, we just uh, pray now as we worship through the, the study of your word, that your spirit would be our teacher, would touch each and every one of us as you will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I, as I prepared for this, I was reading some uh, commentaries on on Philippians, and, and, and these particular verses, I found out, have been called, quote, a theological diamond that perhaps sparkles brighter than any other in Scripture, end quote. I mean, it, it, it has all these high and lofty titles, and, and the reason it gets some titles like that is because it deals with some very deep theological issues. I mean, you have the divinity of Jesus Christ, not merely man, but equal with God, in fact, identical and equivalent to God. You have the incarnation, divinity be, becoming man. You have the, 
the great theological truths of the gospel, God dying for man's sin, and, and as you keep going in the passage, farther than what we read, the resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ and providing foundation for salvation, for eternal life for all of us. And I mean, it covers just some of the most uh, significant theological issues in the whole Bible. But we're actually not going to spend hardly any time on, on the theological issues this morning because at its core, these verses are meant to be ethical and practical for us as Christians. Uh, and that's evident by the way verse 5 starts, right? When it says, have this attitude in yourself. Uh, we're we're going to find out what attitude he's talking about in just a minute, but, but the first point is, I mean, this is something for us. It's not just about Jesus and, and, and these um, uh, incredible theological truths that surround him. It is a practical admonition for us, something for us to do, for us to develop. It's, it's written as an imperative, a, a command. So this is an attitude that is saying that you, you must have. It's not optional for us as believers. And the command uh, to have this attitude is not given in some vacuum. There's a very specific context for these verses that begins back in verse 2. Make my joy complete, Paul writes, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So he's saying what would bring him joy is seeing the local church experience in everyday ongoing reality a true unity that is brought about by having this singular focus on the mission that God's given us. Uh, he called intent on one purpose there and, and built upon this foundation of truly loving and caring for one another. And, and how would you make that happen in the church? Well, the verses go on to say, verse 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. See, we, we, can, we, we can create that unity, we can sustain that unity, which God says uh, then will result in all kinds of good things happening within our congregation. All we have to do is choose to put others ahead of ourselves. So it's simple, right? Uh, all we have to do is overcome our basic selfishness and pride, and voila, there you have it. And then you say, well, wait a minute. How do I get rid of my selfishness and pride? Because even when I'm trying really hard, it seems to rear its ugly head pretty often. And that is where verse 5 comes in. It's absolutely imperative for us to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, to build unity in the church so that we can have the power and impact that we want to have in our mission in this community uh, by overcoming our tendencies towards selfishness and pride, we have to have a certain attitude. And, and the Greek tense of the verb uh, that's there means that this is something that we have to have and keep on having. It's not like, okay, I did it once and now that's taken care of. It's something you work on day after day that you, you want to make sure you have every morning and throughout the day. And, and here's what I think is really awesome about these verses. Jesus is not commanding us to do something that he himself did not already do. 
He's not placing on us anything that was not already placed upon himself. He went before us displaying and maintaining this attitude that he wants us to have. He, He set the bar and the standard so that we could follow his example. So what is the attitude that Jesus had? Well, he had the attitude of a slave. That's what the verses say. Let's look at how that comes out. Let's start in verse 6. It says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so now, theologically, we could spend hours here because this verse touches on the the deep mystery of of the Trinity and the reality of the incarnation, which is just a fancy word for, you know, God becoming man. Um, But I'm I'm just going to take a couple of minutes and, and almost in bullet point form, make a couple observations and then move on to the practical aspect for us. The phrase, although he existed, is a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus, before he came to earth. Jesus uh, existed before he became a baby in Bethlehem. He existed, the verse says, in the form of God. And that word form is a, a very special Greek word that means in the reality of his nature. So in other words, if you're going to put it in simple, plain English, he's saying that Jesus is God. That's what that means. He is God. That is his nature. That's his form. Uh, He always has been and always will be God. But, and this is where then the mystery of the Trinity comes in, Jesus, as God, did not regard equality with God. Now, Now we have a reference to God the Father a thing to be grasped. So here you have two distinct beings mentioned here, Jesus and God, and yet in essential nature and essence, they are one. There is only one God. Uh, The concept uh, of the Trinity is something that has baffled many people, but but it's really uh, a very powerful proof of the divine inspiration of the Bible, right? Uh, The concept... Uh, of Trinity is something that no man would come up with on his own, right? Because it just doesn't compute in our mind, in our limited, finite human understanding. We don't get how the Trinity works. And if you were just making up a religion uh, for people to follow, well, you would want them to understand who this God is and and everything about him. And, And so the fact that that the Trinity is there and it's revealed in the Scripture and we have to just take it by faith, again, that's an evidence that, that the, the Bible truly is from God. And, and the fact that there is only one God, I mean, that's a, a repeated truth throughout the Bible. You can see it in the negative in Isaiah 46, 9, where it says, for I am God and there is no other. There's just one. Or in the New Testament book of James, you believe that God is one, you do well. I mean, over and over again, we see that God is one. And yet, as you study Scripture, you also see the divinity of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is taught. And that's why you find them grouped together in verses like 2 Corinthians 13, 14, where it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The the Trinity is one of those things, if if you got it all figured out, you should write a book, you could make a lot of money. But with the rest of us, we take it by faith because that's what the scriptures teaches and says. So anyways, back, back to our main point here. Uh, this verse says that Jesus, even though he is God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, it is not something that he had to cling to or hold on to. He willingly let go of or forfeited the rights and and the prerogatives of deity. Now, it doesn't mean that he, he stopped being divine. He was still fully God, even as a man, but he limited himself to being something far less. So what does that mean for us? Again, I said this is practical, ethical. What does that mean for us? Well, it means the first attitude, if it says, let this attitude be in yourselves that was in Jesus Christ, the first attitude we need to develop is a willingness to let go of our rights and privileges and status. And, you know, I've already stated this several times as we've been going through this series, that attitude flies right in the face of the uh, so many cherished American values, right? I mean, in America, we're, we're constantly told that we should be fighting for our rights, whatever rights those might be. How many times have you heard someone start an argument with the phrase, well, I have the right to fill in the blank with whatever they're going to say? How many times... Have you used that argument in your own mind while you're trying to justify some action or another? It's my right. Or with privileges. I mean, that plays right into our area of pride, right? I mean, we feel good when we get certain privileges that other people don't get because it makes us feel more important. And then you got the whole status thing. We want to be somebody. Uh, the American goal is to be more important, not less important than other people. But if we're going to be like Jesus, and if we're going to be slaves of Christ, that means first and foremost, a complete willingness to voluntarily divest ourselves of any rights, privileges, or status that we think we might normally deserve. That's the attitude he's calling us to have. And then, look, it keeps going. Verse 7, but, speaking of Jesus, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Emptied himself Another way of saying that he, he willingly put aside his rights as, as, as divine, divinity, but, but exactly how far did God stoop, right? Have you ever thought about that? You know, this verse is just kind of, you can just read it right over there, but exactly how far did he stoop? So think of it like this, from, from the pinnacle of being God over all of creation, king of the universe, unlimited in power and authority, He became a man, a weak, limited, finite human. So he suffered hunger and pain and weariness just like me and you. But then the verse says, not just any man, right? It says he became a bond servant. Again, uh, those of you that have been here for the previous messages in this series, you already know that that word translated as bondservant is slave. The Greek word doulos, which always, 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 always means a slave. So think about that. Jesus Christ became 
a slave. One time when Jesus was traveling around with uh, his disciples, uh, James and John tried to get Jesus to um, uh, uh, do a favor for them and give them the two most important seats in his coming kingdom, right? Uh, Signified by being able to sit on his his, his left and and, and right side. And, And of course... The other disciples, uh, when they heard about this, they all got mad and started arguing because they wanted the most important seats. And, and, and so Jesus uh, squelched this, uh, this particular argument by saying that in his kingdom, if, if you want to be great, then you need to choose to serve others. And then he ended that particular teaching with this statement. For even the Son of Man, a reference to himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He had the attitude of a slave. And he's asking us to do the same thing and have the same attitude. So if Jesus started here as God and lowered himself here to be a slave, how far do you have to drop in order to do the same? Because I guarantee you, you're not starting up here. What's keeping us from having that same attitude? The only thing would be our pride. And and Jesus didn't just say this. He just didn't say this is what we should do. He lived it. He showed it. He did it. Most of you probably remember, as he was preparing to face the cross, he shared a Passover feast meal with his disciples, what we call the Last Supper. And they were in a a borrowed room. Um, None of of his disciples lived in in Jerusalem, so they they, they were just at a, a borrowed room, and that meant that there was no slave to greet them when they arrived. In a normal situation, the owner of the house, if he had invited people in as his guests, he would have had his slave meet each of the guests at the door to wash their feet before they would have entered the premises. And if, if he had more than one slave, uh, this job would always fall to the lowest slave on the totem pole. That's who did the foot washing, the slave with the least status. That's the one. They got the undesirable job. I mean, in those days, there was a lot of dirt and grime and, and animal droppings along the path, so everybody's feet got plenty stinky, and it just made a much more enjoyable evening if they were washed and sweet-smelling feet beforehand. And so that was the slave's job. And this owner of the house where they had uh, borrowed this room to use, he was kind enough to set out a wash tub and water and a, and, and, and a towel for them. But in this situation where no slave was available, the task would have fallen to a volunteer. I'll do this job. But in this situation, nobody volunteered. And one doesn't have to actually guess to know that it was the attitude of their heart that kept them from volunteering. Because if you read the account in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 tells us that during the the dinner, they were busy arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And if you're worried about your status and you're trying to prove that you're the greatest, 
you're definitely not going to be volunteering to wash the other guy's feet. That's the job of the lowest slave. And at some point during this dinner, and and my guess, and nobody knows because the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but my guess is it was probably right in the middle of this argument. While they're arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus got up from the table, laid aside his garments, wrapped the towel around his waist, took the basin of water, and began washing the disciples' feet. So can you imagine the hush that would have fallen over the room? I wonder which disciple was the first to get his feet washed. And how long did it take for the others to notice? I mean, can't you just uh, uh, picture a couple of the disciples, and they're not noticing, they're, they're right in the middle of this argument of how, proving that they're greater than the rest of you, and they're doing this argument while Jesus is washing the feet. Jesus was being a slave. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. You can read the whole account in John chapter 13, but it it finishes in this way. It says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? There's a trick question if I've ever heard one, right? I mean, because they all knew what he did, right? He just washed their feet. Did they really know what he had done? Did they capture the significance of it? Just in case they didn't, Jesus didn't bother letting them answer the question. He just kept going. He said, you call me teacher and Lord. Remember that word Lord is master, the master. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. It's hard to imagine the shame that must have been burning on the faces of all his disciples at that particular moment. I mean, put yourself in that situation. I mean... I know if it had been me, I would have been mentally kicking myself in the pants going, stupid, 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 right? You should have been the one to wash Jesus' feet. And I imagine most of the disciples were thinking something along those lines as well. But then Jesus finishes his teaching by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Now, Jesus already identified himself as master, so who are the slaves? It's his disciples, right? Which would include us as his followers, his disciples as well. So then he adds, if you know these things, you know who the master is, you know who the slave is, you know what you're supposed to do. If you know these things, you are blessed if, You do them. We're blessed when we are a slave just like Jesus. And we're a slave not when we say we are, but when we do it. 
So now, again, get back to Philippians. We have one more question to ask. Just how far should we take this slave thing? Right? I've been talking about it for several weeks, and, and okay, yeah, we understand we're supposed to be a slave, but just exactly how far do we take this slave thing? Because, you know, I mean, uh, you know, washing people's feet, that seems like a pretty gross thing, and, and really, what, what, what all are we supposed to do? Verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a slave, Jesus' obedience went all the way to death, which was a way of saying it covered every aspect of life, every part of your life, every day. Every interaction, every relationship, you are a slave to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, there's so much distance between us and the cross that we have a hard time grasping that, that phrase, even death on a cross. You know, we've, we've sanitized the cross. We've made it beautiful. We make gold and silver jewelry out of it. We make beautiful wooden replications of it to remind us of what, what Jesus did for us there. But what we have to remember, the cross was the most painful, torturous, horrific method of execution ever devised. People shuddered at the thought of the cross. And Jesus obediently went even that far as a slave. So what are the limits of your obedience and mine? As a true slave, of course, there should be none. We do what the master says, believing that even if that means death, we are blessed if we do them. In verse 7 says that Jesus emptied himself. And verse 8 says that he humbled himself. These are statements of voluntary willingness. No one made him do it. He chose to do it himself. In that same way, we understand we choose to follow Christ, right? We, we are not forced uh, into slavery because we were captured in some act of war or, or brought in, in involuntarily to our knees by, at the point of, uh, of the sword, uh, some religious jihad, that type of thing. We are here by choice. And we understand that coming to Jesus Christ means coming to him as master. He is Lord, and that therefore means we are his slaves. But he doesn't force any of that on us. And he is not asking us to do anything that he himself did not already do. Just as he set aside his own rights, his own privileges, his own status in order to serve others, to be a slave to them, so should we. And not only did he set the example for us, but we also get the promise that he'll empower us to do it. See, he's already lived the life of a slave, and now his promise is that he will live his life through us. You might think, I don't know that I can overcome my, my, my tendency towards selfishness and pride in order to be a slave. Well, you're probably right. You probably can't do that. But Jesus can. He is the one living his life in you. 
So be willing to empty yourself of you and set aside your rights and humble your son. Be willing to be as low as Jesus and be a slave like Jesus. Because with that willing attitude, he will live his life through us, empowering you to be a slave. Let's pray. Father God, it's a hard thing to think of lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves. So often we have a willingness to serve as long as we get something out of it. But as a slave, you're asking us to serve in obedience to the master, no matter what the situation is. So Father God, we pray that you would give us that willingness of heart. And we're thankful that Jesus is the one who will empower us because he's already done it. And he wants to live his life through us. So as we submit to him, help us all, God, to attain that lofty position of slave of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.